Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. First, where are we supposed to get to tonight? Just the first chapter of the two, first two. We're not going to get. We're not going to get through the first two, but we'll make a dent. We'll get through chapter one. We're not going to make it, but let's let's just see how far we get. Um, Paul says in verse twelve, "Our boasting is this: the testimony of our conscience that we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom." But by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. What was Paul's great boast when he came to the Corinthian church? I did not come with fleshly wisdom. I came in simplicity. Because what were the what evidently can you imply from his statements here that the detractors were trying to say? Oh, Paul's just a bumbling oaf. You know, he doesn't talk very well and you know, he's not very sophisticated and, and we're smarter than he is and we you know, we've got a better understanding and line on things. And Paul is saying, my boast is when I came to you, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. Because then I knew that when you responded, it was not because of my wisdom and my abilities. It was because the grace of God was drawing you. It was God drawing you. Okay. For you're not writing any other things to you than that which you read or understand. Now, I trust you will understand even to the end. I'm writing to you. Things that you understand. Also, also you understood us in part that we are your boast as also you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of boasting in the day of Christ, what is that? What's the idea of boasting in the day of Christ? Yeah. I mean, what, what do you take to heaven with you? People. Right? People. And Paul is saying, you know, my boast in the day of Christ is not me. It's the ministry, and the effect I've had on, on you. And your boast is me. We boast in each other in the day of Christ. Paul, Paul's just sitting there saying, I, he's being sincere. He's saying, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm telling you, and I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness. I'm not trying to lead you on. I'm not trying to make myself out to be better or worse than I am. I'm being totally honest with you. Integrity. It's called integrity. Um, I'm not making things up. Because that's what people were accusing him of. They were accusing him of trying to make himself look better or whatever to try and gain some power or some favors from the Corinthian church. And Paul says, no, I'm not one of those. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Paul says, I wanted to come and visit you so that I could minister to you and you could minister to me. And that I could take the collection to the, we're going to find that out in First Corinthians, in Second Corinthians 13, the collection to the people in Judea. I want to come by and visit you. Because here's another thing, evidently, that people are saying. Well, if Paul likes you so much, where's he at? If Paul thinks you're so great, why doesn't he come and visit you? Where is he? He says he loves you and he's going to spend three years in Ephesus and not come and visit you at all? 
trying to give them to understand that, well, Paul's abandoned. And Paul said, well, I intended to come to you. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? I was planning to come. Was I just making that up? Was I just goofing off? Was I just not taking it seriously? Who was the person holding the church? The elders. Oh, yeah, it would have been some elders there in Corinth. Okay, so if it followed Paul's pattern, it would have been elders there. Yeah. So it wasn't a main pastor? Um, no. Usually, the early church was governed by, by elders, one of which was maybe a pastor teacher. But it wasn't, you didn't have like the senior pastor and associates and all of that. It, it was a group of godly men who led the, the church. It was a plurality of them. Um, or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That is, that with me there should be yes, yes. There should be yes, yes, and no, no. Um, do you think I'm just planning lightly or... Or, or, or trying to, to lead you on or, or to um, vacillate between, oh, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. He said, I, you know, I don't do this lightly. Because the accusation was Paul was just not taking them seriously. Paul really cared about them. He'd show up and visit them more, and he didn't. Therefore, Paul must not care about them, but I care for you, so follow me and not him. That's the idea. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. I was not vacillating. I had every intention of coming. All right. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, that Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Does God vacillate? The whole idea of yes and no here is Paul's using a word picture. You ever talk to somebody who says, are you going to come over? Well, yes. I don't know. Well, maybe. How do you plan for that, right? <laughs> you know, if you're going to go, if you're going to come over, come over. If you're not, you don't. But don't tell me you're going to do something and not do it. Um, was, is Christ like that? Does Christ say, I'll sanctify you? Nah, maybe I won't. <laughs> I'll save you. No, I've changed my mind. I don't want to save you. Oh, no, wait. I'll, come on, I'll save you anyways. I mean, Christ is not ambivalent. God's not ambivalent. Paul said, I'm not ambivalent. I'm not wishy-washy, you know. For all the promise of God in him are yes. And in him, amen to the glory of God through us. Does God vacillate on his promises? Change his mind? No. Now he who establishes you, us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Who, the, the idea of seals us in our hearts as a guarantee, that's an interesting concept. It's like an engagement ring. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called our Erebon in Ephesians chapter 1. And an Erebon was an engagement ring. What's the engagement ring? What's the, what's the, what's the um, significance of an engagement ring? It's a promise. What's the promise? Yeah, I'll marry you. At some point. Yeah, choice. And, and it's, it's sort of a down payment. All right. Christ, what Paul is saying here is, who's, to us, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is sort of the down payment on our future glorification. If you want to know if you're going to be glorified in the future, how can you know that? Well, I have the Holy Spirit now. 
And God's not going to give me the Holy Spirit and then take it away and then give it again and take it away and yes, no, well, maybe, yes, I don't know. That's not the way it is. It's an irreversible thing. Once you have it, you have it. God does not change his mind. Paul says, I wanted to come and minister to you. I wanted to come and visit you. But I wasn't able to. It's not that I'm ambivalent and I don't care. Or I'm going to just be wishy-washy and not be able to make up my mind. And moreover, I call God as a witness in verse 23 against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. What's the idea of sparing them? God's my witness that I came no more to Corinth in order to spare you. Spare them what? Hmm? Yeah. Why was Paul writing this letter? In fact, why did he write the third Corinthians, which we don't have a copy of? It was critical. Very critical. And if Paul says, if I show up, I'm going to be critical. It's going to be with sorrow. Um, I wanted to spare you that. And in, in a way, Paul's saying, I didn't come because if I would have came, I would have had to bring a rod. And I, I didn't really want to do that. Because you stand, you and I both stand in what? Faith. Paul didn't want to have to discipline them because of their, their treatment of him, because of the way they were treating him. Paul avoided that. It wasn't that Paul didn't care about them. It wasn't that Paul didn't love them. Because Paul's saying, you know, in the day of Christ, we're going to rejoice together. That's not why. He just didn't want to have to deal with them in a disciplinary manner. He wanted to give them time to turn around. And they did. They did. For I determined this within myself, that I would not come to you again, come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? If I come in and I, and I have to discipline you, I just didn't want to do that. I don't want to bring you sorrow. I determined not to come to you in a, on a negative tone. I wanted to come to you positively. And that's why Paul evidently avoided them. Avoided coming to them. Not that he didn't love them, but he, he didn't want to have to come to them in sorrow. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. I wrote this very thing to you here. Verse 3. He wanted to write this thing to them so that they would do what? Repent. Paul says, before I show up again, I wanted to write this to you, perhaps to change you, so I wouldn't have to come in discipline. I wouldn't have to come in sorrow, but I could come in joy. Giving them time. From whom I ought to have joy. Why should Paul, why should Paul have joy from these people? They're his children. He wants to have joy. It's like, you know, the, the parent who avoids going home because he's going to have to discipline his kids when he shows up. You know, give them a little bit of time to repent, maybe. 
That, that's what Paul's that's what Paul's struggle is here. I have to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you again with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly to you. This is the reference to 3 Corinthians. Evidently, Paul wrote a book, a, a, a book that really chewed them out, so to speak, that we don't have. How do we know that it's not 1 Corinthians? Well, 1 Corinthians, he doesn't chew them out, does he? So it can't be 1 Corinthians. So there has to be something before first or before 2 Corinthians, but after 1 Corinthians that he writes. So that's what we get, 3 Corinthians, and this is the fourth letter he wrote. Where there was repentance, there was a sorrowing on the part of the Corinthian believers. Paul did write them a, a, a severe letter. It's called maybe the severe letter of Paul that he wrote them and, and got after them because of their, their treatment of him and, and by following these false teachers that were trying to lead them astray by discrediting the man and the ministry of Paul. He said, I wrote it out of anguish with many tears. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which is afflicted by the majority is sufficient for just some, such a man. Um, this this reference here, what he's doing here, what was the what was the uh, the sin of the man in First Corinthians five? Incest with his stepmother. All right, and what did Paul tell him to do? Put him out of the church. Should you do that as a churches today? Yeah, yeah, you should. You should. But what's the danger if you do that? Huh? Well, no. Leave the lawyers out of this one here for a minute. But what? What? what what's the danger when you do that? Well, the danger. There's a danger. The the danger for them is they might fall away. If they do, they were never believers to start out with. But what's the danger for the ones who put them out? They want to overdo it. Overdo it. Want to overdo it. All right. They want to overdo the punishment, all right? And evidently, that's what happened here in, first, in Corinth. The church did put this man out of the church, but evidently here it says, verse 7, So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Evidently, he had repented. How do you know he repented? He's sorrowful, and would Paul let an unrepentant one back in? No. So evidently the fact that Paul wanted back in would speak to the fact that this man was truly sorrowful for whatever it is that he did with his incest. And what did Paul tell the church to do? Reaffirm him, bring him back in to the church. I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Reaffirm your love. Evidently, this man had been put out of the church. He had repented, but then the church didn't want him back in. They wanted to keep the heat on. And this this is a this is a classic passage on forgiveness. Now, may there be continuing consequences for this man, even if he's brought back into the church? Sure, right? 
But what should you do? Should you bring him back in? Why? Because we are to forgive. That's what we're... Someone says, you're most like God when you forgive. And who do you forgive? You forgive people who are repentant, who say they're sorry, who are truly broken over their sin. Let them back in. Don't throw them out. Why? Because if you keep them out, you may cause him more problems. Not only him, but yourself, right? Because you're not forgiving. Um, how does God welcome us back when we ask forgiveness? Yeah, I don't know. You know, you've done that 314 times before this. You know, I, I don't know. God welcomes us back with open arms when we're repentant. When we have to practice the the the, the, the when we have to practice church discipline and put somebody out of the church and they're truly repentant, we should allow them back in. That's part of what body life is all about. No, pardon? No. You go through the church discipline again. And if they repent, what do you do? Well, you got about 490 of those to come up with before you hit the theoretical limit, right? <laughs> At least. The idea we are. Here's the point, folks. We are to be forgiving towards people who repent, no matter how many times they do it. Because how many times have you committed a sin to God? And how many times has he forgiven you of the same thing? Again, again, and again. When we had a, when we had a church discipline case in this church several years ago, mm -hmm. that one is, so, is this what... A lot of your is concentrated on today. Is this the passage that, that was discussed a lot? Um, not this passage. The Galatians passage was one. Okay. Matthew and Galatians, and and really he was not put out of the church because there was an immediate repentance on his part. There was no need for church discipline in that case oh, because yeah. there was a repent. He did lose his position of leadership because of the 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 sin that he committed and the effect it has on. The church there are, and that's that's one of those continuing consequences that you face. Um, now, had he just been obstinate and just rebellious, yeah, he would have been removed from the church membership. You know, um, and this this is this is part of this is one of the things that most churches don't do. Okay, and the other thing that most churches don't do, they pick the sins, right? Right. Now, which which is worse, sin? Um, gossip or adultery? They're the same. So they never think of disciplining the organist's wife out of the church because of her gossip, but they would someone else who commits adultery, right? That's partiality. Sin is sin. And the kind of sin we're talking about here is not, well, you know, you committed an act of sin. It's a pattern of unrepentant, rebellious sin. <clears throat> Why is that? Because it, dis it, it it destroys the effectiveness of the church. All right? 
we got to understand one, and one of the things we don't understand, I think, is in, as American Christians, is that your sin affects everybody else. We have this idea in America that we you know. Well, what do I do? What's it to you? What I do? It's not hurting you any. Well, yeah, it is. In the body of Christ, it is. You know, if if the pastor of your church falls in immorality, does that affect the church? Sure, it does. It affects the body of Christ. It, there, there, our sin has consequences beyond ourselves. How many sins does somebody commit that's purely against themselves? Not many. I mean, Adam, because look, you know, what, I sinned against myself. I ate the fruit. So what? God says, you know, that one act is passed on to billions of people. Your one sin, you know, is that contagious? The way I act, if I sin and I act in an ungodly manner, it affects not only me, it affects my family, it affects my church, it affects people around me. I have an influence that goes beyond me. When a person sins and are put out of the church, they're put out because of the purity of the body of Christ. God wants his church pure. Why do you think he killed Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, they gave a pretty good offering, to be honest. They probably gave 90%. They deceived it. God wanted his church pure. And this man was put out, and evidently the Corinthians didn't want him back in. And Paul says, no, if he's repented, bring him back in. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Were they obedient in putting this guy out? Yeah. Yeah, now they need to be obedient in bringing him back in because he has truly repented of his sin. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. What's that mean? If you've examined this man and you've forgiven him, I forgive him. We're part of the body, right? It's a body thing. One of the one of the real dangers in church discipline. This happens a lot. Is uh, somebody's disciplined out of the church, they go next door and join that church, and they're immediately accepted because of those bad people next door that are so censorious, right? Look at some of these guys that fall into immorality. They they leave this denomination, and go to another one, and accepted. No question. That's why there's so many Baptist churches? Yeah. No, <laughs> the point is, you know, one, one of the things we should do in the body of Christ is practice inter-church discipline. If you're disciplined out of church A, you should not be able to join church B. But we don't do that in America, you know. Doesn't matter. You know, doesn't matter what you do. Yeah, you can spend it any way you want. And... Um, Yeah, I, I remember we, we disciplined somebody out of our church, and we know I knew what church he joined. And uh, I was tempted to call the pastor and tell him that well, he was disciplined out of our church, and he's trying to join yours. I didn't do it. I should have probably done it. But I didn't. But you should. You should. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, you let them. You're 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 on to them. Yeah, you know. Especially Yeah. Yeah, you have to anymore. Yeah. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us for not ignorant of his devices. Paul says, I've forgiven him. You need to forgive him because we don't want Satan to take advantage of us. What's he mean by that? Unforgiveness kills you. Did you get it? What does unforgiveness lead to? Bitterness. What does bitterness lead to? Destruction. It leads to the dark side. All right. Yeah. At least, you know, Spielberg had a little bit of theology in him. George Lucas. George Lucas had a little bit of theology in him. Uh, bitterness leads to the dark side. Um, I had a friend of mine who got bitter towards this church, started bad-mouthing it. Um, one of my best friends, and finally I just stopped going over to visit him because I got tired. I felt like standing behind a manure spreader every time I went over. He turned the thing on and gave me all the dirt on the church. You know, I, I didn't need that, you know. And he was bitter and angry and resentful and and everything else, and um, a few year, couple years later, he divorced his wife on October 10th and married another woman on October 17th. So don't tell me he just met her and married her within a week. There's something going on there for a while. Became very bitter, destroyed him, and it all goes back to an unforgiving spirit, folks. What did Christ tell you? If you don't forgive men, their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. That does not mean, right, that that when you forgive someone, you restore them to the original position as though nothing happened. That's not what Christ is saying. What he is saying is that you remove any debt they may owe you. You release that. Why? If God has forgiven you your sins, how dare you not forgive someone else their sin against you? How dare you not do that? Sin will or unforgiving spirit will destroy you. It will destroy you. It leads to bitterness, the dark side. And Satan will use that to split churches. He'll use that to cause disruption. And I'll use that because if I have an unforgiving spirit, God doesn't forgive me. Now, what does it mean that God doesn't forgive me? That I'm going to go to hell because he doesn't forgive my sins? Is that what it means? Right. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he paid every penny. The, the point here, you got to understand theologically, forensically, what's forensic mean? What's forensic? Legal, right? Legally, you stand forensically guiltless before God. 
All your sins are forgiven. Period. You will never go to hell because you, you have any sin in your life. Because one sin would send you to hell, right? So God has forensically, legally declared you righteous. All right? But as a parent, my relationship with God, the vibrancy of my relationship with God is based on his parental forgiveness, the relationship. When I offend God, I ask his forgiveness, not because I will be eternally damned, but it's to restore the relationship. All right? And the Bible says that if I don't forgive other people, it will affect my relationship with God. It's not that I will be eternally damned, but I certainly will not enjoy the forgiveness that God has to offer me because of my unforgiving spirit. And Satan will have an advantage of me, and that can turn to bitterness, and bitterness leads to the dark side. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful illustration. It leads to the dark side. And there, churches are full of Christians who are bitter. Somebody did something to them a long time ago, and they're still angry. And you know what? After a while, you forget what the problem was. You forget who started. You know, after a while, you just want to tell people, say, look, it doesn't matter who started the fight. It doesn't matter who threw the first punch. Quit it. Let go. It doesn't matter after a while. Because we allow Satan to have an advantage of us. What does it say? Um, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Why? Because give place to the devil. You allow him to become in and sow an unforgiving spirit and bitterness and anger, and that will destroy you. Can I say, uh, my wife used to facilitate a ministry here and had to do with you know, child sexual abuse and things like that. One of the most difficult things, and it could take years sometimes, but until you can forgive, that person, and until you let it go and can forgive them, and of course this is easier said than done. You just, I mean, she went through it for 20 years, something like that, mm -hmm. before you could actually get to a point where you don't let it bother you anymore. Because you, you cleanse it. You know, you're, you, you've forgiven the person. You may not be happy with them, you know, but you did forgive them for that sin. Mm -hmm. You know. But you're the one that was affected, really. I know it's, it's got to be very difficult. Does does a bitter does bitterness affect the one you're bitter towards for the most part? No, 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 it doesn't. It's 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 a it's a sin where you kill yourself by drinking poison slowly. Yeah, resentment. Reliving. You you're chained to the past. You relive the offense. You can't let go. You know, you're always going back to the to the point of offense. And it, it destroys you. And Paul is saying, don't let Satan take an advantage of you because of your lack of forgiveness. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and the door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragments, fragrance of his knowledge in every place. All right. Now, why did Paul go to Troas? Well, Paul went to Troas to probably meet who? Somebody. 
Um, my notes here say it's probably Titus who took the severe letter to Corinth. Paul was so interested in finding out how they responded that he wanted to come to Troas, which was a seaport. Okay. Troas was the seaport. Yeah. Um, and evidently, Titus finally did return and give Paul news of that. And Paul says in 14, this is interesting. Um, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? What's he talking about there? Triumph. Well, you understand triumph, you got to sort of go back to the Roman culture of that day. All right. And and, and and suppose you were a big Roman muckety-muck general and you went out and you had a great victory against a foreign army. You captured lots of prisoners. Well, what did you do with those prisoners? Well, they came to Rome as slaves and as entertainment in the Colosseum. That's what they were there. That's what their use was. And uh, what would happen is, as the general, you'd come into Rome and they would give you a so what's called a triumph, a ticker tape parade, or whatever it was back then. And you'd get a big white horse and you'd be dressed in all your finery and all your gleaming armor. And you'd be the big general and you'd ride in victory through the streets of Rome and everybody would be cheering and you'd be, have flowers thrown at you and all that of your great victory. And behind you they would have the spoils of war, whatever it is that you captured. And behind those they would be leading the captured prisoners to be taken to the Colosseum and fed to the lions or take part in gladiatorial combat. And what Paul is saying, you know what we are? We're, Christ, we're in Christ's triumph. The imagery is of Christ's triumph. In fact, he uses this imagery later on. He talked when he went into cap, went into, remember it says in um, Ephesians, he led captivity captive. Triumphing over them. One of the things in triumph is Part, some people in the triumph would be the recaptured prisoners of war. If they were Romans, they would be recaptured and they would be take part in this triumph as, as being freed from the oppressed army. And Paul is saying, we are part of Christ's triumph. And depending on who you were in the triumph, the aroma, the smell of the flowers and the parade meant one of two things. It meant life or death. If you were one of the redeemed soldiers or one of the, the freed soldiers, it was a aroma of life. It was a wonderful event. If you're one of the captives, it meant what? Death. He says, you know, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. We are letting Christ triumph triumphantly. And to us, it's a triumph of life leading to life. But to the ones who are perishing, what are we? From the world's perspective, what, what are we? We're the ones going to death, right? Well, really, we're the ones going to life. Being part of God's triumph means you're going to life. 
from our perspective, but from the world's perspective, it's to go to death. You're being led off to death. That's the imagery being used here. Paul saying we are on parade, we are a spectacle to the world. We're actually going to heaven. The aroma of death is for those who are perishing. The aroma, the sweet aroma of life is for those who are being saved. Those who are going to heaven. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. We have sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Wonderful word here, peddling, kapolos, is the Greek word, kapolos. It means to huckster, talk. Um, it's interesting, in some of my old census records of my ancestors, their occupation is given as huckster. And you think, well, what in the world? Is, you know, we have a negative opinion of that, huckster. Well, back then, it was just a word for a salesman. They were a salesman. Whatever they were selling, they were a huckster. It's become to be a negative tone in modern times, but it used to be an honored um, occupation, much like lawyers back in those days. <laughs> um, or tax guys, you know. Uh, I have bad relatives. I, I have I have a few. I, there's a few. There's a few rotten rotten branches in the tree. Um, but Paul is saying we are not like those who peddle. The gospel. How do you peddle the gospel? You can do it for wrong motives, right? All right. Now, there's a lot of people out there who do it for wrong motives, isn't there? You know, send in a hundred dollars, God will give you a thousand. Send in a thousand, God will give you ten. Meanwhile, they're driving around in Rolls Royces and. You know, that, they don't, they won't even have a Cadillac. You know, that's what they give the, that's the cheap car they give the kids. You know, um, they're peddling the gospel. How else can you peddle the gospel? Yeah, and how do you mislead it? Sugarcoat it. Sugarcoat it. Make it to be something it's not. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved, you know. Well, where, where does that come from? Water down. Put it this way. If you, if you want to understand how this works, go look at Christ's evangelistic method. Right? Guy comes up and says, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. Come follow me. I'll follow you, but let me say goodbye to my parents. Uh, wuss. If you want to go back and say bye to mom and dad, I don't want you. I don't want you. Let me go get my inheritance first. No. What about the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus said, uh, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, keep the law, all of it. I've done that. And I still, I'm still missing it. Well, did he? No, he didn't do that. And Christ said, Well, I'll tell you what. Go sell everything you own. Come follow me and you'll have eternal life. You understand? Here's what you need to understand. The rich young ruler was the number one evangelistic prospect in the New Testament. 
And in any class on evangelism, if you had someone like him come up to you and you were not able to lead them to Christ, you would be flunked. Because you didn't have to do anything, right? And what did Christ do? He turned him away because this man was not willing to come on Christ's terms. God's not, the gospel is not something you, folks, understand this. The gospel is not something you have to sell the world because nobody in their right mind will buy it. How is it that people will take it? What happens? What does God have to do? He has to draw them. He has to change their heart. It's all of God, folks. Next time you're witnessing, tell someone, come to, come to God because the uh, Bible tells you that you need to accept Christ as Savior because you have violated a holy God and you're under divine wrath and judgment. And you need to ask God to forgive you. And if doing so, you might have to give up everything you own. You might have to give up your house. You may have to give up your job. You may have to give up your life. You may have to give up your family. You may have to give up everything you have. And, and you have to abandon everything that you hold dear. Nobody's going to go for that, right? That's kind of dumb. And then you get some bird on TV that says, well, you know, the reason Abraham believed God is because it was good because, you know, by faith Abraham believed God and he got wealthy. <laughs> How many wealthy Christians are there? I mean, what did Christ say? Look around. Is there any wise guys among you? Is there any wise or is there any noble? Is there any wealthy? No, there's not a lot of them. Why not? Because they trust in the wealth. They trust in their power, their might, their own intellect. Paul is saying, I'm not peddling the gospel. I'm not watering it down. I'm not trying to sell it as something it is not. It might cost you everything you own. And in fact, did it cost you everything? Yeah. You had to give up everything you are for all that he is. That's what Chris, you know, it's, it's true salvation. Does it require an exchange on your part? Yes. 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 What do you give up? Whatever you're depending on, right? That's what Paul said. First Philippians 3, I was circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. And then I saw Christ and I counted that all as manure, excrement, human waste. And I traded it all for the knowledge of him. Salvation, as long as you're holding on to your stuff, you can't be saved. There's an abandonment. And it may cost you everything. It may. And how can you make that decision? You can only make that decision because God grants you the faith and the willingness to do it. And Paul is saying, I'm not huckstering the gospel. I'm not trying to get you to believe the gospel because there's some great, wonderful benefit in it for you. 
And I'm not watering it down to make it acceptable to you. And that is why this whole idea of the of the seeker sensitive um, movement is is to cause us some some nervousness. Because once you start trying to make the gospel acceptable to the world, what kind of gospel does the world want? The biblical gospel? No, something that fits their values. Does a gospel that that tells you that you are absolutely, totally, 100% worthless, a piece of crud, as MacArthur says, a piece of protoplasm on the way to becoming manure, is that what the world wants to hear? No, they want to hear that you're a nice person. Okay, you made a couple of mistakes, but by and large, you're okay. You're good. They don't want to hear that. Does the world want to hear that they can't save themselves? No, because there's some part of us that always wants to think that I did something to get this. I did something to earn salvation, to deserve it, to make God like me. I did something. No, you didn't. <laughs> Believe me, you didn't. I didn't. The world will want a gospel on its terms. And that's not the gospel of Christ. You want to come to God, you come to God on his terms. Why? You violated the relationship with him. He's the one that gets to dictate what terms you need to do to, be, to restore that relationship. And he has demanded that you abandon all that you are for all that he is. And Paul is saying, I'm not huckstering the gospel. I'm not some guy on the corner of the street trying to sell you a product. Because once you start going down that route, what, will you, what is the natural tendency to do? To compromise, to alter, to change. And what you have in today is you have a gospel in many churches that's not the gospel at all. Rather, it's the gospel of God wants you happy and wealthy and wise and feeling good about yourself and emotionally stable and having a grand self-esteem and driving a nice car and living in a nice house. And if you don't have that, you're out of God's will. That's not the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm not a huckster of the gospel. I'm not a guy on the corner of the street trying to sell you a product, trying to close the deal. And that's why when you have evangelistic methods that focus on trying to sell the gospel, to package it, to, 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 to say it in such a way to, to make it acceptable to people, <coughs> by definition you're destroying the gospel because the gospel message itself is a scandalous message. It's a scandal on. That's what Paul's saying. It's scandalous. It destroys human pride. It destroys, it destroys human self-esteem. It's humiliating. But that's what it is. And Paul's saying, you know, I'm not a peddler. I speak it sincerely from God. Christ did not, did Christ peddle himself? No. Was it the man's of discipleship? Your life. I'll follow you. Okay, it'll cost you your life. Fine, I'll follow you. That's the kind of follower Christ wants. Not the follower that, that's in it for what they get. Because there's the problem, is once you start peddling the gospel and making people think that coming to Jesus is a, is a good business decision, or it's good for the health, or whatever, and then they don't get that, what happens? God's wrong. God doesn't work. No. You, you, you came at it for the wrong reason. You came at it for the wrong reason. We better stop there. We got through two chapters. 
<laughs> Any questions or comments or anything? Well, the, the 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 biggest theme, the biggest theme he's trying to put in there, is that of humility and the and the. Um, so what he's arguing against, he's arguing against people who have come into the Corinthian church trying to pass themselves off as the experts, as the godly people. And Paul is this piece of riffraff that came in. And they're the ones to be followed and not Paul. And, well, look at Paul. He's suffering for Jesus. Look at the trials he's going through. You know, he's not much to look at. Look at how weak he is and how he doesn't really have good vocabulary and he doesn't have good arguments and things like that. And they're trying to degrade Paul. And he's trying to respond against that in many different ways. One of the ways that he does, and it does it like a little theme change here, is that from the world's perspective, I look like a guy going to the lions, but in fact, I'm going to life. It doesn't look good from the world's perspective. And I'm not one of those that peddle the gospel. Implied, the people are li you're listening to are peddling it because they're trying to sell you something that's not real. It doesn't exist. You can't change the message. And he, he, he pursues that. In, um, if you, in fact, if you go down, when you go down verse 3 and 4, or chapters 3 and 4, it really expands on that, that notion that it's, it's in weakness that our strength is seen. It's not in our strength our strength is seen. So we'll, we'll get to that. So, All right, well, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time and for being here. Help us to remember some of these things. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word, that we can understand it and study it and know it. And I pray that we do more than that, but it would make a difference in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.